Hey, good morning, y'all. It's a chilly morning, is it not? But it's warm in here. You know, last week when Trip, our production sound guy, um, when he got here because we didn't have the, the heat set to come on during, you know, over the night, Saturday night, he got here, it was 45 degrees in here. So he said, don't let that happen again. And I said, you got it, brother. So it's kind of warm. It's warm enough in here. Um, you know, we. Uh, my name is Ed Griffinhagen, by the way. I'm one of the pastors on our staff at Church on the Trail, and we're super thankful that you're here. If you're watching online um, on, on our uh, Facebook page or either on, or on YouTube, or if you're here, we're thankful that you're here. There's lots of places that you could be, but God has got you here for a reason. Uh, I think he's going to do something with it. I, the worship, the musical worship we just had was off the charts. I mean, I feel like y'all know that the, 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 the purpose behind the music setting up, uh, you know, two or three songs prior to a message, the intent is for our hearts and our minds to get sort of right to hear a message from the Lord. It's not to say, hey, that music was pretty cool and we're dancing around. It's to get our, it's to get us focused on hearing a message um, from the Lord. And that's why, that's why music is such a, really such an integral part of it, and especially that last song that said, Holy Spirit, renew our strength. I mean, that's the ministry, one of the, you know, the, the Holy Spirit, tons of ministries, and Luke, who wrote Acts, and that's where we are today, Luke, really more than any other writer in Scripture, is very concerned with the Holy Spirit. The Gospel of Luke and the, and the, and the, the Acts of the Apostles that Luke wrote, the Holy Spirit just is all over that. And so anyway, so we are walking through, uh, through Acts, and we have been for several months. We're in Acts chapter 9, and we've been in Acts chapter 9 for a few weeks. And we've been in a series called Scattered. Scattered is Acts 8, 9, 10, 11, and probably 12. And we, you know, we're, what we're seeing is we're seeing the church scatter out into the world. Starts in chapter 8 with persecution. But now we're in chapter 9, and today we're going to be uh, starting in verse 20, going to verse 31, probably focusing a little more on verse 31 than the others. But i I, I got to get us there from 20 to 31. You know, And if you remember, in the last few weeks we saw... Saul, you know, and again, Saul, Paul, same guy, he's just, at this point, he's, he's, he's called Saul. Um, we'll catch him as Paul after a while, but just know that I'm gonna, probably going to say Saul or Paul, but I'm talking about the same guy. Anyway, we saw him at, in the middle of, of chapter 9, we saw him meet Christ uh, on the Damascus Road, on this dusty road between Jerusalem and Damascus, and, uh, and, he's, and he's saved. And then we saw, uh, we saw him go into Damascus after that, and he was blind, and he's in a guy named uh, Judas's house, not the Judas you're thinking about, but he's in a guy named Judas's house, and he's blind, and he doesn't eat for three days. And we see another fellow named Ananias who is given a vision, and, and Ananias goes to minister to Paul in Judas's house on this street that is actually still there in Damascus called Straight Street. And Ananias goes there, he ministers to to Saul, Saul regains his sight, and he's filled, the Bible says he's filled with the Holy Spirit, and when somebody is filled with the Holy Spirit, um, it's not purposeless, it's purposeful. Holy Spirit doesn't waste his time, he doesn't waste his energy, and so when you're filled with the Holy Spirit, there's a purpose behind that. So that gets us, y'all, sort of up to verse, uh, verse 20, and I want us to, I want to walk us through reasonably quickly to get to verse 31. And so it's going to be, Scripture is going to be on, your, on the screen. And do you have, if you don't have a worship guide, I want to, I want to get one uh, in your hand so you can track along. Raise your hand if you don't have one and somebody will get you one. But verse 20, remember now, Saul just gets his sight. He's filled with the Holy Spirit. I said, the last thing I said was the Holy Spirit, person's not filled with the Holy Spirit, purposeless, purposelessly. There's a purpose behind it. And so immediately, verse 20 says, and immediately he, Paul, immediately Paul proclaimed Jesus in the synagogue saying he is the Son of God immediately. He didn't have to sit down and put the pros and cons on a piece of paper. He's, he gets his sight back. He's filled with the Holy Spirit. He's preaching. He is wired up. That's who he is. He's wired up to preach the gospel. He didn't have a seminary degree. He didn't like go to Hebrew University or something or, or Damascus U or nothing. He didn't have a seminary degree. He really hadn't even been a believer very long, 
really probably only like a week. I mean, if any time went by between the three days that he didn't eat or drink, got his sight back, it was just a day or two. But that dude could preach the gospel. He could preach the risen Christ. He always, always, always preached a resurrected Christ. And he could do that right off the bat. He knew the Old Testament. He had studied under an incredibly um, great rabbi in Israel named Gamaliel. Judaism still regards that guy as the greatest rabbi that ever lived. And so Saul knew the Old Testament. Saul connected the dots, right? No, actually, that's not right. The Holy Spirit connected the dots and reveals that to Saul. Y'all, that's what happens when you pick the Bible up and you read it. And all of a sudden, these light bulbs go off. And all of a sudden, you, like, understand something you may have read for, you know, 50 times. And then all of a sudden, you kind of understand, well, that's the Holy Spirit working on you. That's the Holy Spirit renewing your mind, renewing your heart, renewing your strength, and you begin to understand it. Well, that the Holy Spirit did that for Saul, verse 21. It says, And all who heard him were amazed and said, Is not this the man who made havoc in Jerusalem? Isn't this the guy that just was in a raging fury in Jerusalem? Then he made havoc of those who called upon this name. And has he not come here? here in Damascus, has he not come here for this purpose, to bring them bound before the chief president? Is this not the guy that was raising Cain in Jerusalem, comes up here to Damascus to do the exact same thing? Isn't this the guy? And it's crazy because you think about this guy came here to Damascus to kill, arrest, beat, whatever, the Jesus freaks, and now he is the premier Jesus freak in all of the world. Do you get that? The, the, it's ins- it's just crazy. God just does these amazing, like 180 degree turns in people's lives. That's what happened on that road with Saul, and we're starting uh, we're starting to see that play out. Verse 22 says, "But Saul increased all the more in strength. How you reckon he increased all the more in strength? He was filled with the Holy Spirit. So Saul increases all the more in strength." And, and the scripture says he confounded the Jews who lived in Damascus. Well, how did he confound them? By proving that Jesus was the Christ. He baffled them. He confounded them. It means that he won. Paul was a debater. Paul was like this attorney. Like, Paul won the debates. He baffled them. It's like they couldn't really... They couldn't really get their arms like around who this guy is. They couldn't. They just couldn't quite understand him. He was brilliant to begin with. Incredible intellect that Paul had. But when that brain was sanctified by the Holy Spirit, when that, when that mind was infused, remember we talked last week about what the filling of the Holy Spirit means? It's being infused with the Holy Spirit. It's being influenced by the Holy Spirit. It's being led and guided by the Holy Spirit. So when you combine that, that Paul's intellect with this infusion of God in his life, you think about that. When, when the revelation is downloaded to Saul, and I believe that a lot of that happened on that road when he's standing next to Christ. I believe a lot of that happened in Judas's house, when he's filled with the Holy Spirit, lots of, 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 of God's stuff is revealed to him. So when you, take his, when you take that mind, that super sharp mind, and he's influenced by and infused by the Holy Spirit, and, and the meanings and the context of Scripture is revealed to him, you've got a guy that is like, like invincible. He's like invincible. He mystifies the Jews in Damascus. He, he confounds them. He baffles them. And, he, and he, he does that because he proves that Jesus is the Christ. And he proves that Jesus is the long-awaited for, um, long-prophesied about Christ. How does he do that? He uses their Old Testament. Look, there wasn't, there wasn't but the left side at that time. Right? There was no New Testament in that moment. There were some letters probably circulating 
a little bit maybe, but he used the Old Testament scriptures to prove to them that Jesus is the Christ. You can pick the Bible up, really start in Genesis, and the Messiah is revealed throughout the Old Testament. And that's how Paul, Saul, did that with the Jews that are in Damascus. You know that he's going through Isaiah and Jeremiah and Daniel, and he's proving that all these prophets, all these guys are writing about this Messiah, and, and Saul proves that this Jesus guy is the one that they were talking about. Verse 23. This is a baffling kind of verse. Verse 23, when many days had passed, the Jews plotted to kill him. Many days. What does that many days mean? Does that many days mean two or three days or four or five days or a week or two? Well, let me tell you what the, the, the Greek word means. It means that a significantly sufficient amount of days had passed. It indicates a very substantial time, a, 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 a it means the, the, the amount of time that is sufficient to get done whatever it is that God wants to get done. Many days. Most people feel, believe, think that that many days is about two or three years. So you have about two or three years between verse 22 and 23. It says, you know, a thousand days or something. But the bottom line is those many days is the amount of time that that uh, God used to get done what he needed to get done. Well, well, you wonder, well, okay, where are you coming from? And, and what is he doing? What is Saul doing in those many days, in those two or three years? And it could have been four years, but we feel like it's probably two or three years. Well, well, well it doesn't say anything in, in Acts chapter 9, so where's that coming from? You want to talk about dots connecting. You know, Paul writes Galatians, Colossians, Ephesians. A lot of dots connect from letters that he wrote and you overlay that into Acts, which is a, really a history book that Luke writes. And so we look, we find this in Galatians chapter 1, um, and he says, Paul says, after his conversion, this is uh, Galatians 1 verse 16, he says, I did not immediately consult, and he's talking about after he gets saved, I did not immediately consult with anyone, nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me, but I went away into Arabia. And returned again to Damascus. Then after three years I went up to Jerusalem to visit Cephas, that's Peter, and remained with him 15 days. So Damascus to Arabia to Damascus to Jerusalem. That's the track that was going on. So it is no doubt he's preaching. Scripture told us in verse 20 that he's preaching. It says immediately he started preaching. Well, he's doing that in Damascus, and then he moves for a while into a, ge a geographic area called Arabia. I have absolutely no doubt that he's preaching there. Well, why do I think that? Because that's what Paul does. That is who Paul is. God saved him to preach. God saved him um, and called him immediately, and that's what he did. Verse 24, does that make sense? You tracking with me? Damascus, Arabia, Damascus, Jerusalem, and we're going to follow that. So verse 24 says, but their plot, whose plot? The Jews in Damascus' plot. It says, but their plot became known to Saul. Now remember, this is really like two or three years later. It says they were watching the gates day and night in order to kill him. So they're watching the gates because they're trying to trap him, they're trying to get him, they're trying to kill him. And so back up a little bit, and this area that Luke calls Arabia was ruled by a king named Aretas, A-R-E-T-A-S. So some, and he spent two or three years there, and we have no doubt he's preaching a risen Christ while he's there. So somehow, Paul's boldness, remember we talked about Paul's boldness last week, Paul is bold, Paul is, in, is independent, he is not ashamed of the gospel. So Paul, somehow, somewhere along the line, he gets up under this guy's skin this Aretas, this king in Arabia, he gets under his skin too. Well, why do you reckon he gets under his skin? Because he's preaching the truth. The truth gets under people's skin. Many people, y'all, don't want to hear the truth. Paul is preaching a risen Christ. This king in Arabia don't want to hear that. 
The truth stings sometimes. He's preaching the gospel. Lots of people just don't want to hear that. Paul later on, he writes about this in 2 Timothy, I think it's 2 Timothy, and he tells Timothy, you know, there are times going to come where people don't want to hear a sound doctrine. But don't, don't let the word doctrine, I don't know, scare you or you think, oh God, here we go, all preachy preach. Doctrine d- doctrine's not a bad thing. We got to have sound doctrine. We got to have sound doctrine that plays it out, itself out into sound practice. In other words, the sound doctrine has got to get us acting right. The sound doctrine has got to get us treating people right, talking to people right, speaking to people right, um, taking care of widows and orphans and the people on the streets. But it's got to start with the sound doctrine. Does that make sense? So this guy in Arabia, look, Paul's not an ear tickler. And he tells Timothy, time's coming, people aren't going to want to hear sound doctrine. They're going to have itching ears, and they're going to want to hear what they want to hear. And there's going to be pastors that are going to fulfill that. They're going to tell people whatever the people want to hear in today's world to fill a seat up with a warm hind end. Y'all, like I'm not an ear tickler. I'm just, it's just not who I am. It's not what I do. It's not the way I talk. It's not the way I think. Susan has told me so many times, it's so cool that you don't have a bunch of church history and baggage and you don't know about business meetings in church and fighting and all. And all. She said, you don't, you're just trying to do what the Bible says to do. And the truth is, that's all I'm trying to do is what the Bible says to do and it says to preach the truth. That's all I know how to do. And so if I offend you, well, you're offended. I mean, <laughs> but if I offend you, with the truth, then I'm unapologetic. But if I offend you because I said something really stupid, because that'll happen too, then you need to call me to the table on it. But I'm going to preach the truth of Scripture and the truth of the gospel in bold independence, I guess. Amen. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Because it's the model that we see in Scripture. I mean, it just is. And so Paul ticks off this dude in, in, in Arabia. And we know from secular history that this king provides soldiers to the Jews in Damascus to try to catch and get and kill Saul. So we know he must have offended him, and I'm pretty sure he offended him with the truth. So he's preaching Saul. He's preaching everywhere he goes, everywhere he goes. And everybody is mad at him, and they're all after him. And then verse 25 says, but his disciples took him by night, and let him down through an opening in the wall, lowering him in a basket. It's like Mission Impossible stuff or something. They lower him down in the basket. And verse 26 says, and when he had come to Jerusalem. So it tells me they lowered him down, and he takes off for Jerusalem, which is not around the corner from Damascus. It's 150 miles or so. So several weeks probably journey walking from Damascus to Jerusalem. So it says when he had come to Jerusalem, and think about it, We just went through about three or four years in those verses. So when he is saved on that road, it's three to four years before he gets to Jerusalem. You got to kind of get your arms, or it's almost like you want to draw this timeline or something so you can understand that. So it says, and when he had come to Jerusalem, I'm in verse 26, he attempted to join the disciples. And they were all afraid of him, for they did not believe that he was a disciple. He attempted to join the disciples, but they didn't believe, just call a spade a spade. They didn't believe he was saved. They absolutely didn't believe that he is saved. And the tense of the word attempted is it's a continuous action. And so it says that he tried and tried and tried. And the tense of the of the of the word um, that they were afraid is also a continuous action. So what it really means is he tried and tried and tried and they were scared and scared and scared, right? That's the way that sort of played out. The Bible says they were all, every one of them was afraid. Every time he tried, they were scared. He was struggling to crack into the club. He was struggling to crack into this group of guys. And it was because they did not believe that he was saved. Because think about their, where their minds were. All they knew, look, they didn't have a cell phone with immediate access to everything. They couldn't go online and see what happened on that road two seconds after it happened. They don't know about all that stuff. You didn't have the, con- the connectivity of the world 
was, was it, it just really didn't exist. And so they didn't know. All they knew, you think about the last thing they knew of this guy Saul, which would have been about four years earlier, is he's leading the charge, stoning to death their brother Stephen. That's all they know. And they know that he's gone out and been, been murdering and arresting and kicking. That's all they know. And so logically, y'all, they're, they're afraid. That's right, brother. Did y'all hear that? He said they had a right to be because it's all the history they knew about him is that he was a murdering, ravaging, havocing guy. So that's their, their history with him. And so they say there's no way this guy's getting saved. There's no way he's saved. You ever know anybody that way? Somebody says, oh, Billy Bob that used to be at the pool hall, blah, blah, blah. You know, God saved him and people, churchy people say, no, nah, I don't believe it. I was the dude, they said, I don't, there's no way he got saved. There's no way. Well, yeah, there is. Don't be putting God in some box. Remember weeks ago we talked about nobody is outside of the guardrails of God's grace. Nobody is too bad or too this or too that or whatever for God to save. Nobody. So don't be all holy and righteous and churchy and think that you're better than somebody and God can't do anything with them. And don't think that about yourself either because people go down that road too. Yeah, God can save so-and-so and so-and-so, but you just don't know what I've done. That's a lie straight from the pit of hell, so don't go down that road either. But they, nonetheless, they don't think that he is saved. Verse 27 says, but, thank God for buts in the Bible, but Barnabas, that didn't come out right, but Barnabas took him, who? Paul. Barnabas took him to the apostles and declared to them how on the road he had seen the Lord who spoke to him and how at Damascus he had preached boldly in the name of Jesus. So Barnabas, who is the what? Y'all remember who Bar Barnabas the encourager? Barnabas the encourager. Barnabas who they trusted. Barnabas was in the club. Barnabas was a friend. Barnabas was a brother. Barnabas they trusted vouches for Saul. Barnabas like puts his arm and you know you got all the guys Peter, James, John, Andrew all those guys they're sitting there and there's who knows if there's 12 or 25 of them at the time but Barnabas like puts his arm around brother Saul and he's like let me introduce you to the guys. Guys Saul this is Saul he's okay he's okay he's with me he's like he's on our side he, radical Jesus story. I can hear Barnabas saying it. Y'all, you got to hear his Jesus story. It is radical. You got to hear it. He's okay. He's okay. Peter, put the Glock up. You know, that's Peter's personality. Like, Peter, put the gun away. And James is like, there's no, there's no way. So, so Barnabas tells James to calm down. He said, I've been hearing this guy preach about your brother. That's what he's been doing up there in Damascus and in Arabia. He is okay. He's legit. He's okay. So it's this warm introduction from somebody they trust to them. And so they, they, they bought into it. They said, well, well, will we believe you? Well, they don't say that. We don't read that in Scripture. But the very next verse says what? So he went in and out among them at Jerusalem. That's an idiom. Going in and out is an idiom in that culture, which meant we, we kind of were hanging out and then we, we were free we were free to hang out with each other and to go in and out and talking to you now and I'm going over here, but then I'm free to come back. That's what that, 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 that idiom, that's what that means. And so it says in verse 28, so he went, he, Paul, went in and out among them at Jerusalem. What did he do going in and out and all the time he's in Jerusalem? Preaching boldly in the name of the Lord. That's what he does. He, that's his DNA. Verse 29 says, and he spoke and disputed against the Hellenists. What does that mean? That means he debated. That means he, it doesn't mean that he argued, screaming, yelling like a madman. It means he had civil arguments, civil discourse, debates with them. You know, if you think about these verses, however many, eight or nine verses we just kind of walked through, you remember the character traits we have talked about, um, about Saul, that he was strong-willed, that he was persistent, that he had inflexible convictions, that he was a mad 
leader, had crazy leadership ability, that he was boldly independent, that he was highly motivated. You remember that? Can you not see that in all of those last eight or nine verses? We just walked through three or four years of Saul's life, and you see all of those character traits that before he meets Christ at best are neutral, but they're really being used for evil. God turns all that towards Jesus when he saves him, and you can see that playing out there. Verse 29 continues on, says, but they were seeking to kill him. Well, here's a shocker. How long have he been in Jerusalem? What's what, what the Bible say? Is it on the screen? Yeah, two weeks. Two weeks and they're already trying to kill him. Two weeks. It only took them two weeks to want to try to kill him. Why? Because they don't want to hear the truth. They don't. They don't want to hear the truth. They don't want to hear that they got to repent. They don't want to hear that they got to turn away. They don't want to hear that they're a hypocrite. They, they don't want to hear that. And so it's really not probably the people necessarily that are trying to kill him. It's the leadership. And there were a lot of leaders. But it's the leadership uh, in, in Israel that are doing that because their, their power is in jeopardy. Because if we put Jesus on the throne of our lives, who comes off the throne? True, everyone else, but if I put him on the throne of my life, then I'm coming off the throne. I dethrone myself. I deny myself. I bear his cross, and I walk in humility the best that I can. And they don't want to hear that, and so they're trying to kill him. Verse 30 says, and when the brothers learned this, they brought him down to Caesarea and sent him off to Tarsus. So for their own protection and for his, at the end of the day, for his protection um, as well, there we got to get rid of this dude. We got we got to send him off. We need some peace. We got to let things cool down a little bit. Not that they were mad at him. Things just needed to cool down, and so they took him to Caesarea, which is sixty or seventy miles west, kind of northwest of Jerusalem, um, and they put him on a boat and they sent him home. You know, dude, you got to go home, get some rest, get some R and R, take a vacation. Do something and let this whole thing cool down. What do you think he did when he got there? Well, Acts right here, do you think he had some little R&R or went to the day spa and got a massage every day or something and just took a rest? No, that's not who he is. They put him on a boat, and then in Galatians chapter 1 and verse 21 tells us, um, and again he's talking about this, he says, afterwards I went into the regions of Syria and uh, Cilicia. Well, Tarsus is in Cilicia. He's talking about this event in Galatians. What did he do when he went there? Galatians doesn't tell us what he did, but later on in Acts, in chapter 15, we can figure it out. Acts 15, verse 23, it's referencing a letter. And so Luke is referencing this letter, and it says this. It's the greeting of a letter. It says, the brothers, both the apostles and the elders, and I don't know if this is on the screen. No, it's not. But the letters, write it down, Acts 15, 23. The brothers, both the apostles and the elders, that's who the letter's coming from. And it says, to the brothers who are of the Gentiles in Antioch and Syria and Cilicia. Greetings. The brothers. When, when a letter is addressed in Scripture to the brothers, is it addressed to saved people or Christians or, or non-Christians? Christians. He's referencing he's a letter that is written to Christ followers. And where are they? In Cilicia and in Syria and in Antioch. And there's not a church on every corner yet. They're being planted. Well, who did it? Paul did it. And so we know that when he went back to Tarsus, that's what he did. All over the place, planting churches everywhere. He was inexhaustible. This guy, he is a Jesus-preaching machine because it's what he does. There was absolutely no stopping him. So he goes to Syria and Cilicia and even Antioch, and he takes off, and he's preaching Jesus. So we see all of those traits that he's got rolling out over this next two or three or four years. All of that gets us to verse 31. It's kind of where I want to land. That's a 30-minute introduction. So, 
Verse 31, so the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace, had peace, and was being built up, and walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, it multiplied. So this one verse, verse 31 in Acts 9, is a summary, uh, kind of a summary statement of the state of the church, and it's really a summary statement of the conditions that ought to exist in every church. What kind of condition should the church be in? And we see, I think, three or four. The first one is this, peace. The church should be in peace. We should be at peace with each other. We should be living and walking in peace with each other. There should be calmness. And the tense of that word is active, which meant that there is a a state of continuous peace. And it had been go. And what's the definition of the church? It's not a building. The definition of the church is a body of believers. It's the body of, of actual believers. And so actual believers, a group, we should be at peace with each other. And, and there had been crazy. They just are coming through some craziness, some troubled times, but now that trouble had kind of been dealt with and peace was reigning. Peace and calm had shown up and they began to take, kind of take control. The idea here is that believers were rejoicing in the peace and the deliverance that the Lord had given them through a huge trial. What's the huge trial? You go back to the beginning of Acts chapter 8 and the beginning of chapter 9, and there was massive, massive persecution, and the Lord had worked through that. Storm had settled, and peace and calm and quiet has, uh, have prevailed. So God intervened and stopped the persecution, and he really did it in two ways. The first way that he did, because he stopped the persecution and peace is prevailing. Well, what did he do? What did the Lord do? Well, first and foremost, he radically converted and saved the villain. Who's the villain? Saul of Tarsus, Paul. And so God says, well, okay, if he's the one that's going to do it all, I can take care of him. And he could have done it any way he wanted. He could have thumped him off the planet and killed him. But he didn't. He radically saves him, the arch enemy of all, the persecutor of all. And so he saves that guy. And then number two, the Lord overruled the evil of men to work things out for good. Paul is looking back, guarantee you, in Romans 8, 28, he's looking back to all of this that happened in that first two or three or four years of his Christian walk. Romans 8, 28, write that down. Romans 8, greatest chapter in the Bible. Verse 28, what does it say? It says, God works all things together for good. Is there a period there? No, don't ever quote that that verse that way because he doesn't work all things together for good period he works all things together for good for those who love him and are called according to his purpose good things bad things ugly things pretty things painful things deaths life births all of it and so we see that in this world event that you probably don't know anything about you may but you probably don't I didn't but I want to tell you about it he uses this event in Israel to distract the Jewish leadership's um, attention away from persecuting the church. And this is Guy uh, Caligula. You probably, maybe you've heard of Caligula, Caligula. Maybe you hadn't, but he's the Roman emperor at the time, and he's trying to set up a statue of himself. Where is he setting the statue up? In the temple in Jerusalem of all places. He's going to force the Jews to worship an image of him in the temple. It's an abomination to them, a total abomination to them, an absolute affront to everything that they believed in. That was a much greater threat to the Jews in Jerusalem, in in Judea, really, in Galilee, a much greater threat to them in their minds than this little band of followers of some dead, vagrant carpenter dude. They had to get their attention on the Roman emperor who's trying to get them to worship him inside the temple. So they turned from persecuting the church to dealing with this threat of Caligula. Well, here's a thought. The church, the body of Christ, when that stuff happens and there's peace, we need to be rejoicing. We need to be rejoicing in the peace. Ought to be incredibly thankful for the God who works all things together for good for those that love him and are called according to his purpose when he ushers in some peace and calm. Because there's going to be times of suffering. Scripture tells us we're going to suffer. 
There's no escaping it. So when there's some peace, there's a big cause for rejoicing. James writes about this suffering in, in chapter 1 of his letter. He says, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness or perseverance or stick to and let that steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete and lacking in nothing. So there's going to be suffering. I mean, there just is. But there also, God will provide some peace and some calm. And when the peace and the calm is provided, we need to take advantage of it, y'all. We need to make use of that time. We need to not waste that time. We need to grab a hold of that opportunity where there's peace and calm and proclaim the gospel loud and clear and often because it's just not always going to last. The peace is just not always going to last. Jesus said in, in John chapter 9, he said, We must work the works of him who sent me. It's a weird way to say it. Jesus is saying, we got to do what the Lord says. we got to do what my Father says while it is day because the night is coming, he says, when no work can be done. So when we can get out there, that my translation, is it on the screen? It probably is. That's my translation that you got to get while the getting's gettable. Does that make sense? That's what we got to do. We got to get while we can get. And that's what Jesus said in John 9, and that's what Luke is saying here in Acts chapter 9. So, number one, a church should be at peace, particularly internally. Y'all, we should be in unity. The brothers and the sisters in Christ, we should be at peace with each other. Not fussing about dumb stuff, we should be at peace. Condition number two is this, the church should be being built up. So we see this church here in, in Israel being built up, strengthened, edified, whatever the word you want to use in there. We see them growing spiritually. We should be doing that. It's a continuous thing too. The church there in that context and us should continuously be being built up. What does that look? How does that look? What does that look like? Four or five things probably. We should be becoming stronger in our faith in Christ. We should be becoming stronger in our trust of him. And he's going to throw us nuggets every now and again. Like, well, this is not a big deal, but it, but it kind of is. It's a little tiny thing that happened this morning. We were having issues in production at the beginning when the, when the worship team was, was, uh, was rehearsing this morning. There was a, you know, they wear ears, these little ear things. And there was this really buzzing thing. I'm not a musician, so I just say it's a buzzing thing in their ears. Couldn't figure out what it was for 15, 20 minutes probably. Um, hello? This <laughs> teasing. It was buzzing, right? And I was sitting right here and watching, and, and they were trying to figure it out. And this is like not a big deal, but it is. I just sat there and I said, Lord, would you please fix this thing? It's fixed. Like the second, and I don't even know how it was fixed. I don't know what they found or what they did, but it was the crazy. I just smiled. I'm like, just the little things and the big things. It was just cool to watch it. It was just super cool to watch it. So we're growing spiritually. We're being built up. Our faith and our trust in him ought to be growing. We ought to be learning more and more of the Word of God, digging into the Word of God, digging into His teachings, and digging into the doctrine. Again, don't let doctrine be some evil, scary word. We got to know what Scripture means and, and, and what it says. You know, we got rally days next Sunday and the Sunday after. If you're new to our church, that means growth groups are kind of going to be highlighted, a little flea market out in the hall. with And, y'all, we've got, even right now, we've got somebody teaching or facilitating a group, walking through Hebrews, walking through James, walking through Matthew, walking through Genesis. Um, we've got a new uh, group, women's group, that are going to be going through the seven feasts from the Old Testament and how Jesus is in the middle of all that. We're, we should be digging into Scripture together. That's what we should be doing. I'm not saying that there's... That, that, other books outside of Scripture, like, are bad to read. I'm not saying that. 
but we should be digging into the Word of God together. And so we push that a lot here. You know, we ought to be gaining a greater and greater knowledge of the Holy Spirit's presence and power and what He does in our lives. We should be becoming more effective witnesses for the Lord. We ought to be gaining more and more boldness in our walk and more and more boldness in our, in our witness. So the church in Acts and us, we should be at peace. And we should be building each other up. And then we should be walking and living for the Lord. Condition number three, we should be walking and living for the Lord. Paul wrote in Colossians 2.6, this little sentence is so impactful. He says, therefore, as you received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him. As you receive him, as you are indwelt with the Holy Spirit, Walk in that, act in that, speak in that, love in that, serve in that, treat people right in that. Don't just hoard your salvation. Don't just hoard the change that the Holy Spirit wrought in our life. Don't, don't do that. You ought to just be coming out in the way that we act, and that's what Paul writes in Colossians 2.6. As you received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him. And they're really walking in two things, and we see it in verse 31. Number one, they're, they're walking in the fear of the Lord, living in the fear of the Lord. And that simply means to, to live before Him in trust and in reverence and in awe and in worship and in obedience. Live a life that is a constant witness to the glory of His grace and His love. We love to hear that and His holiness and His righteousness. Walking in that. His grace and His love and His holiness and His righteousness. Luke chapter 1 verse 50. Jesus' mama Mary in her song of praise in, in chapter 1 of Luke. She says, and, and His mercy is for those who fear Him from generation to generation. 1,500 years before that, Joshua in Joshua 24 it's written, now therefore fear the Lord and serve him in sincerity and in faithfulness. This fear the Lord thing, y'all, doesn't mean to fear his presence, to wither up and withdraw and be scared of him like that. No, it's really the opposite. It means that, that we stand in awe of him, desperately wanting to come near him, to know him, to trust him, to come to him in, in thankfulness. Thankfulness that we can be in an intimate relationship with the very creator of the universe. That is an awesome thing. It means that we're not scared to trust him. We're not scared to believe in him. We're not scared to approach him. We're not scared to be obedient to him. We're not scared to worship him. We're not scared to do his will. We're not scared to serve him. We're honored and privileged to be able to do all of that. It's an honor and a privilege to be able to serve the Lord, so first they walk in this fear, and that's a better, I hope you get what I'm saying when, when that word fear is used. Second thing is we should be walking in the comfort of the Holy Spirit. He's our comforter. He's our advisor. He's our helper. He's our encourager. That word that is used there for comfort is paraklesi. We get the word paraclete if you've ever heard that word from that. That picture that it paints in our mind is this one who is called to, to stand by the believer's side just like Jesus himself did. That's why Jesus made this promise in John 14. He said, and I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever. You know, in the Great Commission in Matthew 28, at the end of that, he says, I will be with you always. That means he will be with you always. How is that when you're indwelt with the Holy Spirit? And so he's our comforter and he's our helper and he's our encourager. And he's flooding their hearts, and he should be flooding our hearts with this incredible sense of his presence, comforting and advising and helping and counseling and encouraging and advocating for us, leading us, guiding us, helping us to understand the Word of God, helping us to understand how awesome it is and this joy that we should have 
just over being saved. Overwhelmed with the knowledge that we have gained this eternal inheritance. And so we're walking and we're living in his very presence. Condition number three. Condition number four, which is almost a result of all of it, is that the church should be growing. Should be growing, but don't misconstrue what that means either. Bible says it multiplied at the end of verse 31. The church in Jerusalem, in Judea, in, in Galilee, in Samaria, it's growing. It multiplied. Their spiritual growth is happening. Amazing spiritual growth. And they were growing in number because the number of people getting saved, because what's the definition of the church? It's the body of believers. And so people are getting saved and people are growing spiritually and God is using their spiritual growth to lead other people into a saving relationship with himself. So these are people that are walking in the newness of life and that's the church. And so the church should be growing spiritually and the church should be growing in number. So we see in this moment in time in the first century this model for us of the church in Judea and Galilee and Samaria, they were at peace with each other. They're not bickering. I'm not saying they're holding hands, sing kumbaya, and they never have a disagreement. Like, I'm not saying that. But they are at peace with each other. They're majoring on the majors. They're not majoring on the minors. They're building each other up. They're edifying each other. They're encouraging each other. They're digging into the Word of God together. They're gathering together. They're serving together. There's togetherness and unity going on in that church because there's peace. And in this time in Israel, there's external peace, relative external peace. And so there's unity and they're building each other up. And y'all, when you put your arm around a, a sister in Christ or a brother in Christ and you just say, Man, I hadn't seen you in two weeks. It's just so good to see you. Or you call somebody up and say, hey, you want to go get a cup of coffee tomorrow? I just missed talking to you. Like you have no idea how much, that, how much that means. They're building each other up and they're studying the word together. They're walking together in the fear of the Lord. They're walking together in the comfort of the Holy Spirit. They're aligning their will with his will. Y'all, that's just a few of the essentials of a healthy, vibrant, growing body of believers for reaching people with the gospel of Jesus Christ for fostering um, spirit the spiritual growth of a body like church on the trail and we want like desperately to foster the spiritual growth of everybody in our little church everybody we want to we want people to grow move down this kind of spiritual progress line. And there's opportunity. The only thing that we as, a, as leadership in the church can really do is to provide opportunities for that. And I feel like we really do that. You know, I feel like we do it. Opportunities to serve all over the place. Opportunities to dig into Scripture all over the place. This thing that we're doing on Wednesday nights that Richard talked about a little while ago. Just gathering together on one of those Wednesday nights and eating together and just talking and hanging out and building each other up. Words of kindness, words of affirmation. And then the other Wednesday nights, digging into the scripture and studying Paul's letter to the church at Philippi, the book of, uh, the letter, uh, the book of Philippians. You know, there's opportunities on Tuesday night um, and Monday night. There's opportunities on Wednesday morning early Bible study, uh, Thursday night, Friday morning, Saturday morning. There's that thing with Travis and Sonia Todd. Um, that are crew missionaries like he's the, the director of digital solutions I think for crew I mean they've got like I don't know seven eight hundred thousand people in East Asia in online discipleship groups together y'all the gospel is spreading it's spreading so things like that on with with the Grove and with Trailblazers with the men's ministry on the 9th I think I'm saying that right if it's February 9th um, no, it's not. It's February 3rd. I'm sorry. So come. Come. There's opportunities. Jump in, man. Serve together. Dig into Scripture together. Grow together. 
And not just to grow together, but then we can go out and make a difference in the world. Serving out in the world. Being the hands and, and feet of Jesus out in the world. Right? Now, the first thing that's got to happen, though, if you have never given your, 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 your life to him, surrender your life to him, that needs to happen. Um, not a difficult thing. Not a complicated thing. Sometimes it's difficult because the devil is deceiving us into thinking we're not worthy, whatever. Um, but I'm telling you, if you have never done that, let today be the day. Today be the day that you say, I'm going to turn away. I'm going to turn away from the junk in my life. I'm going to turn towards the Lord. And I'm going to believe on his name. I'm going to believe that he died to pay a penalty that was mine to pay because the sin's got to get paid for. But I believe today that he, did, that he paid it for me. And I just cry out to him to save me. Just cry out to him to save me. Y'all, let me pray, and, and I'm going to turn it back over to our praise team. Lord, if there's anybody listening today that has never made you their leader and forgiver, Lord, I, I, I beg you to have them pray this right along with me. And Lord, we understand that it's not the prayer that saves, that it is you that save. Empty words don't do anything. Heartfelt words, life change, heart change that you bring about does something. But, Lord, sometimes it's just good to get the words out. So if there's anybody who's never done it, if you just say this with me out loud or to yourself, Lord, I turn away from the sin in my life. We call that repentance. I turn away from it, but that's only half the turn. The other turn is turning towards you today. Lord, let it be the day that I do turn towards you. And I know that life's not going to be perfect, but I will be in a relationship with you because I believe you paid the penalty for me and you walked out of that grave alive, Lord, and I surrender my life to you. In Jesus' name, amen. Listen, our worship, I mean, our uh, prayer team is back in the back left corner. If anybody needs to, to pray or needs prayer, Please go by there and talk to somebody. I'll be out there after church, after the worship service, for a few minutes by the couches out there to talk if anybody wants to talk. Um, y'all have a really great week. I want to turn it back over to y'all.